So at this time in the week, it feels a little bit like we're getting into the heart of the retreat. Um, perhaps the turbulence of the first few days um, continues. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's very interesting retreat. It's like there's, there's what we think is happening and there are these layers and layers, you know, and so much is happening within us. Um, that's not, um, quite apparent to the, the conscious mind, you know? So, and maybe that's where the, the faculty of, of trust comes in, of, of faith, that even though um, the retreat or the practice may not look exactly like I expected it to look or wanted it to look, um, something's happening, something really valuable is happening. Some, something is moving, aligning, um, integrating. And so it's very hard to evaluate our own practice from within it. It's like, you know, I don't know, you're in an airplane. It never feels like you're going a thousand miles an hour or however fast they go. Um, and so but trusting that something is happening and um, that continual sort of allowing for, for things to be as they are also allows things to change. You know, if I have the idea that, oh, I know how this is going to be, I know how the next sitting is going to be, um, that tends to, to, to lock something in place. So, um, Often retreat is, um, it's not what we expect it to be, but um, that's probably a good thing, <laughs> you know, because um, what, one of the, you know, sometimes you can get this idea in Buddhism or in Dharma practice that desire is bad. But I love this idea of, it's not that desire is the problem, it's that our desires are sometimes too small, too narrow, you know, and we're, we're fixed on something that's um, uh, too small for us. That's not, you know, that's, um, you know, so to, so to let ourselves really um, uh, explore this freedom of what they sometimes call in practice, the, the not knowing mind. Um, you know, in Zen, this idea of not knowing or being a beginner is, is really valued. That it's sometimes that the, someone who, who thinks they know something, this is a problem with teachers, <laughs> you know, um, that's okay, but we can sometimes be limited by what we think we know or what we know. And so the idea that the beginner's mind is wide open and um, um, I remember someone saying that they were a beginner in a, in, a, in, a, in a Zen group and the teacher said, you know, just kind of saying, oh yeah, I'm here, I'm, I'm a beginner. And the teacher said, stop bragging. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the beginner is really um, lif lifted up and um, and for the rest of us, we're trying to recover that purity. We're trying to recover that innocence. Um, you know, children have this. The children are so interested. So I think that's why little kids can learn different languages so quickly. I mean, they're just open. They're listening to everything. They're like sponges. And they're, they're, everything's interesting. Everything's new. Everything's, you know, 
there's a brightness. Um, so, you know, so as we go through the retreat and get into this heart of the retreat, what is it to keep this beginner's mind, this mind that um, is okay with not figuring, having it all figured out, and is actually open to possibilities? Um, so, um, the the topic for today is the fourth faculty. We've we've covered. Um, sata, which is faith or trust, confidence, and then effort, which is virya. And, and you know, I like this idea of um, our practice beginning with an awakening, some kind of awakening. Um, one of my teachers says that um, we we all have been enlightened, but we don't remember it. You know, this idea, but there's some kind of echo of that, or some kind of awakening of faith, maybe, that brings us to the path. Okay. And then um, we realize that um, it's not enough. Faith is beautiful. Trust is beautiful. But it's not enough just to have trust, just to have faith. We need to apply our energy. We need to, we need to give ourselves. We need to... Um, make effort. And so this is the Pali word virya. Um, I think the English word um, like virile comes from that. I, I, I think so. But it's, you know, it has this idea of, you know, really giving ourselves to something. And, but in a wise way, what kind of effort um, does it take? So, and then so yesterday, Gil talked about mindfulness, about awareness. And um, I love this idea. I think he said, at least I heard something like, this is how the universe knows itself through us, you know. And so this idea of awareness as being, um, this faculty of awareness as being very close to who we are. Um, Sometimes we, we, you know, we might have the idea that mindfulness or awareness is, is something that comes from the head or comes from somewhere, you know, comes from somewhere in our body. But I think in, in Buddhism, in our practice, there's this idea that awareness is everywhere. You know, and it's not something to believe, but it's something just to kind of hold of like, what, what would it, what what would it feel like to experience an awareness that is everywhere and that everything is included in that awareness, is coming and going, is arising and dissolving within that awareness. When I think that way, something in me relaxes. It's like I don't have to, you know, crank out a, a kind of laser beam and, you know, point it at something and, and, and become mindful of it. It's like, Awareness is everywhere. Um, it's just remembering. You know, oh, yeah, right. Um, um, so this awareness, mindfulness, is this knowing quality of the mind, the mind that knows. Um, and this fourth faculty, um, the topic for today, the Pali word is samadhi. Samadhi. Um, samadhi is is usually translated as concentration. Um, but um, many many people think that concentration is a little not such a great English term for samadhi. It's a little bit limited in some way. It's like when I think about concentration, it's like I either think of like the concentrated orange juice that <laughs> you should drink in the summers, or, the, or anyone remembers that, or is that <laughs> am I? You know, I don't know if they even sell that anymore, but it's like this really s sweet, you know, and you have to add water, and um, or it's like someone telling you concentrate, you know, focus. <laughs> 
and it has that um, pushiness about it. And that's not the feeling of samadhi. Samadhi is um, this natural, beautiful um, unification of the mind. When the mind begins to come together and all of the different um, opposites, all of the different um, forms of, we could say, multiplicity, all the different things we see and the, you know, the various phenomena start to merge and come together. Um, so it's sometimes talked about as unification of the mind, gathering the mind. Um, it has this quality of steadiness, you know, steadiness, stillness, centeredness. Um, a mind that is collected, you know, it's gathered, it's collected, it's composed, it's um, I love this idea. I think it's uh, in, where, I think it comes from Zen, but this idea of like the turtle with the, the, the head, the tail, and the four legs all inside the shell. You know? so this is samadhi. This is this, this collectedness. Um, and the, maybe the most important takeaway from this talk or the, or the most um, practical thing for your practice, for a meditation practice, is, is um, this idea that this kind of samadhi, the samadhi as a uh, faculty of, uh, for Dharma practice, for awakening, um, the doorway to the samadhi is pleasure. Is the sense of pleasure, the sense of well-being, the sense of ease. And this can be a little bit counterintuitive because, um, well, we, we might think, well, my mind is, you know, is, is not exactly like that. And what does it take to get it to be like that? Well, it's going to take a lot of, um, you know, pushing and, and effort in a certain, and, and trying hard and, um, and, and of course there's effort, but, um, this, this was the great discovery of the Buddha, you know, in the story of the Buddha's own awakening, um, before, before the Buddha became the Buddha, um, he practiced the most extreme ascetic practices. You know what ascetic means? It's like, you know, really self-punishing. So he's described in these ways of like, if he touched his belly, you could feel his backbone, you know, um, going without food, going without water, going with trying not to breathe. Um, really pushing the body to these far extremes. Um, and in this scene of the kind of spiritual scene of, 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 of ascetics, um, pleasure and joy was not really trusted because it was like, if you have pleasure or joy, you're going to just fall into, you know, living a kind of whatever, um, hedonist lifestyle, or at least not, you know, focus solely on this project of spiritual awakening. So the Buddha was part of this, this, this scene. And, um, uh, you know, at some point was so weak, was, was, you know, almost died, was falling down and doing all these things. And then at some point he had a memory. He had a memory of being a child and sitting under the rose apple tree and um, falling into a state of blissful absorption. And it was effortless. And he was just, you know, just a young child and was just with his breathing and just, you know, and just the way children kind of, you know, are, um, don't, you know, they have the kind of innocence, right? They don't have 
um, all these um, uh, concepts and pieces of knowledge in their head that they have to get rid of. It's like they're open. And so, so as a boy, he was under the rose apple tree, absorbed in, the, in this um, still, blissful, beautiful way. And what he remembered was the pleasure that was part of the pleasure that that was the doorway um, into this, into this, uh, into this samadhi. And it was a pleasure that was, didn't come from uh, external things. You know, often um, before we come to, to meditation practice or spiritual practice, we probably associate pleasure with um, some kind of external object or external reward, getting what we want, some, you know, delight for the senses in some way. And what the, what Gautama, you know, before he was the Buddha, what he was remembering was this kind of pleasure that came from the inside. You know, it was like this um, completely wholesome, completely um, internal pleasure that didn't, that didn't hurt anybody, that didn't um, harm, that, that, that was totally um, within, within him. And, and so um, in having this, this memory, um, the Buddha decided to begin practicing this way, which is called the middle way. Be, you know, not going to the extreme of asceticism and not going to the extreme of um, indulgence. And and, it, and, it, and it's like this is, you know, the big pivot point for the Buddha. This is the big pivot for, for Buddhist practice, that um, there is a doorway of well-being, of joy, of pleasure, of ease that um, opens all of this up for us. And um, so that's good news, isn't it? <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah, so where is it? <laughs> um, we're going to get to that. <laughs> but I wanted to say that up front because it's like, it is possible to practice for a long time and not really trust that, not really believe that, believe that there's something out there or there's some, you know, there's, um, you know, it can't be this close. It can't be, it can't be inside me. It has to, you know, I have to make, I have to, you know, kind of strive to create something, um, build something. And just to have this idea that the hallmark of samadhi is ease, is this joy, is this ease, is this well-being. Um, and so, um, you know, kind of talking about this very uh, developed type of samadhi, I want to, I want to, I want to say explicitly that there is a range of samadhi, a range of, of, of this kind of collectedness. And every single person here has more samadhi, has cultivated samadhi over these days and has more samadhi than they had when, when we started, you know? So it's like, it, this is something that builds little by little. Um, and any amount of samadhi is good. You know, any amount of, of, collectedness of mind, of steadiness, is a good thing. Um, one way that I, I find it helpful to understand what samadhi is, is um, very simply moments of awareness, moments of mindfulness. Yeah, so, so, so what samadhi is made up of, the substance of samadhi, is mindfulness, is moments of mindfulness. 
But often, usually, our mindfulness, our awareness is, um, what's the word? It's intermittent, you know. <laughs> you know, we're, 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 there's a moment of mindfulness, a moment of connecting, maybe a moment of feeling the body or the breath. And then a, a bunch of moments of, <laughs> you know, of being gone somewhere. And then we kind of, you know, come back and there's another moment of mindfulness and there's, you know, some moments of being gone and then come back and being gone and come back. Um, then maybe we're gone for a while and then we come back, <laughs> you know. So this is like inter intermittent mindfulness, intermittent awareness. And um, there's nothing mystical about samadhi. There's nothing... Um, you know, it's literally having more and more moments of mindfulness, more and more moments of awareness next to each other, you know? And so it's like you have one, and then you have the next one, and then you have the next one, and then you have the next one. And, um, you know, it will still be intermittent, but... Um, for, the, for those of us who like metrics, <laughs> well, uh, Joseph Goldstein, who's a wonderful senior teacher in our tradition on the East Coast, um, sometimes talks about noticings per minute, NPM. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and if you get really into the practice and you're really getting settled, you start to realize that the NPM is rising, <laughs> the noticings per minute. How many, how many, you know, it's one thing to, you know, okay, I'm, I'm here, and then boom, 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 I'm here. So every 10 seconds, there's a moment of mindfulness versus every, you know, two or three moments of mindfulness in every second, you know. So it's the difference between having 10 noticings in a minute versus having, you know, 100 or 200. That, that's what samadhi is. That's how samadhi builds. And, um, and if we understand it like that, it gives another, um, it sheds light on why we focus on continuity of practice, you know, because all samadhi is, is continuity of mindfulness. It's moment and moment and moment of mindfulness. So, um, you know, and it's, it's very interesting to take like a chunk of a day on retreat, like to take a sit and then a walk and then a sit and see, can I keep the, the mindfulness, the awareness continuous in some way, you know, not in a natural way, but having this idea to keep it continuous for this, what would that be like I don't know, an hour and a half or something or 90 minutes. And sometimes what you notice, what, what, what can be noticed is that when you come back to sit down, it's like, wow, it feels a little different when there's been this, this big chunk of continuity versus, you know, the way I would often practice on retreat. It's just like the bell ring. It's like, oh, <laughs> get up, <sighs> you know, briefly consider walking and then like go make a cup of tea and then like, <laughs> sit and have my tea and then go to the bathroom and then, okay oh, it's 10 minutes for walking so it's just you know it's you know it's a different quality of the mind and and sometimes that's okay you know sometimes um some minds really thrive on that um maybe having a, maybe saying i'm going to be mindful for a whole day is too much but to say a sit a walk and a sit feels like a chunk it's chunked and it's it's doable um and then sometimes you realize that you're kind of at your capacity and the mind is not it's not bright there's not this enthusiasm for practice so you need to take a break you need to just rest you need to so using your wisdom but but just to have this idea that, that there's a very important purpose for continuity continuity builds samadhi um
So the other supports that are traditionally given for samadhi are, is this word in Pali, which is viveka, which means seclusion. So in a way, being on retreat here, we have some, you know, intuited that there's a value in this type of seclusion. You know, where it's, it's not that we're going to be here forever. It's not that we're um, escaping from the world. But it's like um, every once in a while to step back, you know, to step back from um, the, all the different concerns and all the, uh, the, the many, many multiple, multiplicity of life. And this form of seclusion is um, said to be very supportive for the development of samadhi. So there's a physical seclusion, you know, seclusion, you know, we're, we're all here together, but there's sort of a way that we're alone and we're together. You know, we're each having our own experience. We're definitely, um, not literally, we're rubbing against each other, <laughs> you know, in the, in the sense of, hopefully not literally, but it's, <laughs> the, you know, it's like this idea of stones polishing each other and we're like smoothing, smoothing off each other's edges. Um, but there's this element of seclusion and that can be challenging. It can feel, it can feel lonely. It can feel isolated. Um, but hopefully, you know, um, we, we find our way or we find some, some way of relating to the, this, this sense of seclusion. And so this is, there's this seclusion physically, but, but maybe more importantly for this, for the development of Samadhi, there's this seclusion from the hindrances, you know? So this is, this is where these, these five hindrances, um, become very important that the st a state of Samadhi, um, is a state where, um, the hindrances are, are radically quieted. Um, you know, they may not be completely absent, um, but they're, they're radically quieted. So it's a, it's a, it's a state where, um, desire and aversion have been relaxed. You know, this push and pull wanting, I want it. I don't want it. I like it. I don't like it or hate it. You know, this is sort of relaxed. It's a state where the energy is relatively balanced, you know, often we'll have an imbalance and there's too much, you know, it's, it's, there's, um, restlessness, there's anxiousness. And, um, you know, when we discover that, um, we can bring in some calming practices and calming the mind, calming the body, or there's too much calm. There's kind of sinking. And then we bring in more energy. But what is it when these are both absent and there's this balanced energy? And doubt, the fifth hindrance, doubt is, um, is absent or doubt is quieted. Um, it's almost like you could say that this, a state of samadhi is a state where mindfulness is present, awareness is present, and the hindrances are absent. That's it. You know, that's the formula. It's, it's, um, um, so yesterday, Gil was talking about um, this idea of, um, do you remember the scooter, the scooter analogy? You know, and you kind of, you kick, you, you've got to push, you've got to kick off with the scooter and then you, you glide and then you guys, so you push, you kick and you glide and you kick and you glide. Um, this is one way of talking about um, what I'm going to get into next, which are these supports for samadhi, which are called the jhanic factors. Have you, have you heard this discussion? So the jhanic factors are um, qualities of the mind that support the development of samadhi. And um, so in giving this, this, this picture of the scooter, um, 
Gill was illustrating the first two of these jhanic factors, which are in Pali, they are called vitaka and vichara. Vitaka and vichara. So vitaka means um, connecting. So it's like every moment that we wake up from a daydream and connect to the body, connect to the breath, there's like some thought, right? There's some intention. There's some, oh, yeah, breath, yeah, or body, or yeah, you know. Um, and this, so there's this intentionality. This is vitaka. This is connecting. And then vichara is sustaining, sustaining that connection. So this is the gliding. Push, we kick off. We have some effort to connect, to come back. And then there's this sustaining, this gliding. Um, sometimes it's talked about as rubbing or polishing. You know, so I think in the suttas, the, they give this analogy of polishing a, um, you know, a candle, candle, candle holder or something. It's like you, vitaka is touching. So you take the cloth and you touch, you touch the, touch the brass, touch the metal. And then vichara is rubbing, it's polishing. And um, this is, this is sort of like the basics of our meditation. It's like you connect and you sustain, and then connect again and sustain. And so I like this idea of polishing because it's like, you can have this idea of awareness polishing the breath, polishing the sensations of breathing. And then um, something interesting starts happening, that it's not only that awareness is polishing the breathing, but the sensations of the breath are polishing the mind are polishing awareness, are sharpening awareness, brightening awareness, brightening mindfulness, sharpening mindfulness. So it's like these start to come up together. Does that make sense? Is that, you know, it's like you give attention to the breath and start to see the sensations of the breath. Maybe, just, maybe just a few breaths, but you start to really see them, really see them more clearly, really see the details in the breath. And then in seeing those details, that sharpens the mind, that sharpens the awareness. It's like, it's brightening something. It's, it's you know, so they, they sort of start to come up together. Um, and so the, for these five jhanic factors, the first two are really the ones that we sort of do. We, we make the effort to connect. We make the effort to, to, to sustain that connection. And then the next three are what happen. And they're called, um, in Pali, the third one, the third and fourth are pitti and sukha. Um, uh, pitti is, is sometimes translated as, don't get too excited, but rapture. <laughs> no, it's, that's a little bit of an old-fashioned word. But um, rapture is like this physical... Um, this physical pleasure, this physical joy. And sometimes when, when, when that begins to be experienced, um, there can even be some fear, you know, because it's something that's a, a little unusual where it's, it's not so commonly felt outside of meditation, although it can be felt outside of meditation. But um, so pity is this physical joy and sukha is is mental happiness so isn't that interesting like you know we connect and sustain connect and sustain and then um physical joy and happiness arise and the th and the fifth is is the pali word is ekagata which means kind of single-mindedness or one-pointedness um so um and I, I think these are um, not talked about so much because it's easy to sort of have some idea about them and then it can sort of become something to grasp. 
onto. Um, but maybe it's enough to say that our work, our job is to just get the scooter going. You know, we don't, we don't manufacture pity or sukha. That's not something we do. We just get the scooter going and we just start, we just start moving, getting this motion going. And then um, these other beautiful qualities can arise. Um, so, um, I want to say a little bit about the benefits of samadhi or the purpose of samadhi in, on this path. Um, maybe it's enough to have just this really kind of cool, interesting experience. That's, that's fine. That's great. But for the purpose of the, the path of awakening, we can think of samadhi as the bridge between mindfulness and insight. It's the bridge between awareness and insight and wisdom. Um, the Buddha said many, many times in the sutta, one who cultivates samadhi sees things as they are. One who cultivates samadhi sees things as they are. So, it, it, you know, it's very interesting that, I mean, it's often been remarked that if you want to make your, your, your body strong, you need to move it. You need to move, you need to exercise, move it around. But if you want to make your mind developed in this, in this kind of, you know, uh, practice, it's about, uh, not so much about moving our mind around, but keeping our mind still, discovering a kind of stillness. And in this stillness, um, m we can perceive more, we see more. When the mind is really moving, um, and I think we all know this experience when your mind is moving a lot. Um, first of all, we miss a lot. We don't notice a lot. You know, we're moving fast. We're going around. We, but also it's like when, when the mind is moving a lot, when there's a lot of agitation, a lot of busyness, the world can seem fixed. The world can seem very solid. I know for me when, what that feels like is almost like Whatever my problems are, it's like this idea like they're always going to be this way. <laughs> you know, this is a fixed, solid thing. But when the mind, when there's more stillness in the mind, we begin to see, we're able to, able to perceive change. We begin to perceive that um, things are changing. Things are um, not stable. Things are, you know... We talk about impermanence. Um, so to see impermanence, we calm the mind, we steady the mind, we gather the mind. And so that's the main purpose of samadhi, um, is, 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 to, is, is to support the arising of insight, of wisdom. Um, one of the ways I, I the, the image I often have is if you have a microscope, um, you want to put it on a surface that is stable, that's steady, that's unmoving. And then you can look through it. You can look. And so samadhi is the, is the element here that's, that doesn't move, that's unmoving. And to actually look and open the eye is awareness, is mindfulness. Um, does that make sense? No. Um, there's another great image in the, in the early texts of um, an axe. And uh, many of you probably don't use an axe that much unless you have a fireplace or something. Um, but if you can imagine an axe, the sharpness of the blade is mindfulness, is awareness. And the weight of the axe, the heft of it, is samadhi. You know, just another way of thinking about it. If, if, if it's a very heavy axe, but it's dull, it's completely dull, it doesn't work. It can't cut, it can't chop. If it's really sharp, but it doesn't have that weight, it doesn't have that power to it, you know, it's like an exacto knife or something. It's not going to help us cut down, you know, chop wood. 
So you need both, and they both work together. Um, so I, it's the, the, the final thing I want to say just specifically about samadhi is that um, many people find that cultivating samadhi, developing samadhi, is one of the most healing and sort of purifying and fulfilling um, parts of this path, parts of this practice. And it's very interesting. It's like I've had friends who've said that insight practice, vipassana, mindfulness practice, has really helped them to see through their conditioning. You know, you start to see, oh, wow, I'm a person who had this mother, this father. I have this kind of, you know, attitudes in my mind. I have this kind of, these blind spots, these characteristics. And I can sort of see that they're, they're, they're impermanent. They're empty. They're not, they're me, but they're not me. You know, so we start to be able to see through our conditioning with wisdom. And that's very important uh, for, for insight, for waking up. But it's sometimes said that through samadhi practice, it's actually possible to change our conditioning. You know, there's something very healing about finding this deep source of well-being, deep source of ease that's within us. And when we realize that that's a capacity that's inside of us, um, it takes a little bit of the sting out of being human, maybe <laughs> being a person. It takes a little bit of the sting out of having to, having to always get conditions out there right in order to be happy, in order to get what I need, in order to, you know, be fulfilled or just the right, you know, um, kind of food or the right kind of partner or the right kind of this or the right kind of that. And those are all great things. Um, but if we, if we, if we're fed from within like this, you know, um, a lake that's fed from a deep well that's coming up and um, that's nourished from within, then the deep kind of letting go is possible and deep kind of healing may be possible. And so some people say that it was through samadhi practice that really that their conditioning shifted from being fear-based, you know, having this sort of default fear response, which I can certainly relate to, to having um, a, a default response that is uh, not fear-based, that's, that's open, that's, that's, um, that's, that's more based in metta, more based in kindness, more based in compassion. Um, so it's interesting. It's very interesting. And so, you know, samadhi is in the service of wisdom, but it also has these benefits. It, it's like, when we know that um, there's something healing and wholesome and fulfilling that's within us that we can tap into, um, that's a wonderful thing, you know. And it's and, and just to say it's it's something to be to be cultivated hopefully for the rest of our lives. It's not like you get there's something, okay, you finished and you're done with samadhi and you, you got there. It's like this continual explore, exploration, this continual deepening of, um, of, 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 this, of this sort of um, unification. And, um, and And, it, and it's something that we, we can touch into. We can experience flavors of this on retreat. And also to be just aware that it's something to, we can become attached to also. We can grasp it also. That it's a conditioned state. So it comes into being with these certain conditions. Seclusion, um, continuity of mindfulness, well-being, joy, pleasure, all these things. And when those conditions aren't there, samadhi, Samadhi, the samadhi that we've developed, we won't, it won't be there. And so that's fine too. It's like, you know, sometimes I remember this story 
from the early days of Zen Center. And, you know, you have this idea of being with the breath is a good thing. We often talk about mindfulness of breathing. So the yogis there had this idea of, okay, I just should be with my breath all the time. So they'd answer the phone, you know. <sighs> <sighs> Zen Center, hello. <sighs> Your breathing is like, no. <laughs> you know, this is not. Yes, it's good to cultivate mindfulness of breathing. It's good to have the continuity, but um, be natural, you know, (laughs) be natural. Um, And we'll talk more about this, Um, but yeah, samadhi can be, and the other thing I think about samadhi is it's a, um, even though it can feel like, um, we don't have access to it if our life is busy or we're not sitting a lot. It's almost like we've we've dug we've dug a ditch, we've dug a trench, and then it gets a little bit papered over with leaves or something. But very quickly we can clear those leaves away and the depths of where we've gone are right there. You know, so it's not like we have to worry about like holding on to something or you've lost it and you're gonna how am I gonna get it back now and I gotta do it double retreat to, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, no, it's all there. It's all there. Um, so I hope this was okay to talk about, you know, this is a little bit more of a, a sort of meditation workshoppy kind of talk, but, um, I wanted to, to put Samadhi in context and, and may hopefully demystify it a little bit that, you know, the, the wonderful thing about this practice is how, um, I don't know if logical is the right word, but it's like, it's all about this form of cultivation where if you set these conditions in place that supports the arising of this. So it's like faith, trust supports the arising of effort. Effort in a certain kind of way supports the arising and the ripening of mindfulness practicing mindfulness, um, practicing awareness supports the arising of concentration of samadhi. You know, it's like, um, uh, so just to understand how those pieces fit together for certain kinds of minds is very helpful. And if there's something that's not helpful, just let it go. Just leave it here. It's not important. Um, you know, it's, it's keeping that beginner's mind is really the the most important thing in, in being, having some basic idea of what we're doing and then keeping that sort of original purity, original brightness. Um, so in the spirit of that, I would just like to read this poem to close. Um, and this, I don't know why I remembered this poem, but I think um, it offers some image of of this path and this practice and, you know, this deepening into who we are, deepening into um, going more and more close in, you know, in this, this, this cultivation of samadhi. So this is, if I said, this is Mary Oliver. Even now I remember something, the way a flower in a jar of water remembers its life in the perfect garden. The way a flower in a jar of water remembers its life as a closed seed. The way a flower in a jar of water steadies itself, remembering itself. Long ago, the plunging roots, the gravel, the rain, the glossy stem, the wings of the leaves, the swords of the leaves, rising and clashing for the rose of the sun, the salt of the stars, the crown of the wind, the bed of the clouds, the blue dream, the unbreakable circle.
So in these next few days of the retreat, seeing what it, what it is to steady ourselves, remembering ourselves. Um, this unbreakable circle of life, this unbreakable circle of the Dharma um, that can't be stained, that can't be defiled. Um, Just sit one minute. Even now, I remember something. The way a flower in a jar of water remembers its life in the perfect garden the way a flower in a jar of water remembers its life as a closed seed. The way a flower in a jar of water steadies itself, remembering itself. Long ago, the plunging roots, the gravel, the rain, the glossy stem, the wings of the leaves the swords of the leaves, rising and clashing for the rose of the sun. The salt of the stars, the crown of the wind, the bed of the clouds, the blue dream, the unbreakable circle. 